Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 40. Uh, today we've got Gareth Wynne-Jones, but just before I introduce you to Gareth, I'm going to try and say good evening. Gareth is always saying good morning in Welsh, uh, Borada, uh, which I might have butchered as well. But I've done some looking up on YouTube, and I think good evening, this is obviously going out at 7 o'clock in the evening, is, here goes, North Swift Bar? North? Am I miles off? Absolutely brilliant. You nailed it. Nailed Perfect. <laughs> well, I had—you'll uh, know her well, I'm sure. Gareth Maynard Howells on uh, the podcast last year, and uh, I actually said the whole "Welcome to our two cast number 10 and I did not nail that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Gareth, if you want to say hello to everyone, <clears throat> yeah, hello everyone, and um, yeah, looking forward to this little bit of a podcast and a chat. Um, it's always good to get our thoughts out there, always good to share the conversation and open the discussion and uh, sometimes put petrol on the fire as well. Well, I, I think we'll get into it. You're certainly one of the biggest petrol offerers to that fire, it must be said. <laughs> uh, but all all in the right, all in the right name of, of promoting agriculture and sort of de-promoting or demoting, shall we say, the anti-agriculture of which there's a lot of out there, unfortunately. Um before we get on into another excellent episode of the R2Cast, I would just like to thank the sponsor for the show today, The Scottish Farmer. A weekly magazine highlighting everything you need to know regarding the Scottish agricultural industry. Whether it's breaking news, events happening in the sector, market reports, classified ads, or just wholesome stories happening in the industry, The Scottish Farmer's got it for you. For those of you who don't know Gareth, I'm surprised if you don't. There's very little chance you're aware of me and not Gareth. I mean, I did some sort of looking up just before we, we turned on Zoom there, and it looks like you've got over 160 followers across 160,000 followers across basically all platforms, which is a bit mental in itself. Um, but yeah, if, if you don't know who Gareth is, check him out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Every, you're everywhere these days, aren't you, Gareth? But yeah, listen, we're here. What's that? <laughs> Even a TikTok account, I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, if, yeah if, you've, if you've ever came across that vegan teacher, uh, you've probably came across <laughs> Gareth and her battles. <laughs> uh, so there's some entertaining stuff on there, which is all quite good. Um, but enough of me uh, talking about you, Gareth. Better if you could tell us yourself. Could you tell us a bit about the farm you're on? It's been in the family for a while um, and it is of uh, notable size as well. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, family's been on the farm for 175 years. Um, it's a family business. Um, we were, uh, my grandfather started it, old Jones and Sons. I still work for him. Well, I worked for him all my life and I never met the man, which is uh, quite, quite, yeah, unique, really. Um, he had five brothers, uh, five sons, sorry, um, and the eldest son went to farm by himself. It's a long story, won't go into it. Um, and then he had another four lads that came together and came home to start the partnership with him. And uh, after that, they brought four of their old children in. So um, there was eight of us in the company at one stage. We're down to six now. Um, we've lost, my father's lost three of his brothers. My father's still here and my one uncle Will. And then um, I have three other cousins as well. We've done about 4,000 ewes, 300 head of cattle. And um, we've got a caravan park as well. And uh, yeah, we've got something very, very unique here, which is the Carnevai ponies. So 
the land mass we have is about 2,000 acres where we own and rent. And then we have 27,000 acres of open mountain, uh, which is a common and um, which we have rights on. It's not just our rights. There's quite a few other families that have them rights as well. And the rights go from the ponies to the sheep as well. And um, it's a big part of our business. And we use the, the mountain and the rights, um, you know, in, in a positive way. We don't overgraze, we don't undergraze. It's, it's something that can be difficult some years, you know, to get that balance right. Especially when you're looking for tack land now, it's very, very expensive. Um, so yeah, it's farming's always challenging. Doesn't matter what you do, but for me, you know, I love to grow my own veg, keep bees, um, train sheep, dogs, just just little things. I do a lot of shooting as well. You know, I've got a, I'm on a syndicate, uh, just a bunch of working boys, farmers, um, people that work on the gas, mechanics, and we all go out and uh, you know shoot some pheasant duck. And partridge and uh have just a bit of a crack and go for a couple of pints after and just you know blow away the cobwebs and just put the wills <laughs> to rights and uh that's what life should be um i'm married to one i'm a father of three and uh yeah my eldest son is at the moment working up in glasgow on a batman film production that's what he does now, location management with these big film companies. I don't know where he got these connections from. No, who, who, who'd ever believe it? Um, <laughs> my, my middle lad, he's working um, with a drainage company, a uh, local drainage company in the village, um, uh, Phil, and uh, he's enjoying that. And my youngest, my daughter, has just passed the test yesterday. And she's absolutely buzzing. I and mean, she's gone through about 100 quids with the diesel already. So, um, yes, I think she might be going into taxiing services in, in, in later life. Uh, so uh, that's a little bit about me. Um, I'm not going to mention the television work and the radio stuff and, you know, the social media stuff, because I'm sure you're going to ask enough questions about that. But already. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, saw, I saw your daughter pass a driving test. Uh, good stuff. I think we all... Uh, just drove and drove and drove and we passed. But in fairness, a hundred quid of diesel at the minute is probably about four litres. So yeah. uh, <laughs> it's, it's in a bad way uh, from, from that perspective. But um, I think we know where those contacts came from. I think that was his dad. Uh, I think that's where the <laughs> contacts of the telly came from. Um, yeah, no, but great stuff here. Doesn't, might as well take advantage of what you've got. Some people have, have the opportunities and don't use them. Um you mentioned the Carnadai ponies, uh, which I want to go into in a minute, but just before I forget, um, what what breed of sheep are you running? So we've got the Welsh Mountain, which, uh, you know, especially North Wales, Welsh Mountain are the best sheep in the world. Um, and, uh, yeah, absolutely think they're fantastic mothers. Um, they can transport grass and porous grass into absolutely top quality protein milk as well you know and, and they produce plenty of wool they're really good sheep again you know bred for a purpose up here the same as your blackies the same as yeah. i think we forget sometimes that these animals were bred in the areas for that purpose and um you know the farmers and the shepherds would have utilized the the best of them animals and that's why we've got what we've got up here so we run um a, about a 500 um, lowland flock as well. And what we do is we 
sell about 600 draft views every year. And the ones that, you know, maybe that got a broken tooth, one eye, not quite right. We keep them for ourselves, which sounds a bit crazy, but there's, there's nothing wrong with them when we, we cross them for maybe two or three years. Um, we bought Suffolk, we bought um, Chardelet, we bought uh, Border Leicesters as well, and uh, we keep them as half-breds. We keep them on the lowland farm in Anglesey. So it's a little bit of a jolly mixture, really. You know, I, I like to keep my finger on a lot of things. And um, I've really enjoyed the Chardelais over the last three years. I was asked to get involved with the, the Hill Chardelais Society and Hill Roberts and, um, uh, what was her name? Oh, Amy Melton. And they all got me involved. And do you know what? It was absolutely brilliant. Because in 2013, we had Chardelais, big snow hit, and I lost a lot of them. Um, and I went off them at that stage. But they brought these in, and I've been very, very pleased with them. And um, I've gone out and I've bought a few more after. And um, it's like everything else, you know. We, I think we all have a, a good run, and then something comes and kicks you in between the legs, and you think, oh, God, yeah, we'll, we'll change it or, or, or do something different. But... I think whatever suits you, and if it suits the farm and it works for you, don't ever kick it, you know, and, and that's the main thing. And just make sure that you're able to, you know, produce something that's top quality. Yeah, and I think I think there's that fashion almost leads to trying to fix something that isn't broken, which is a, a silly thing to do, really. Um, uh, what, what were you running before the Charlies then? That was just in the last few years. Yeah, so Suffolk's, um, we had a few tech. Texels as well. Um, <laughs> I won't go into them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> look. I think every everything every dog has his day, and maybe sometimes you know you might you might not got something that suited you, and um, that puts you off them, um, and, and and that's the way it is, really. I still think you know there's nothing like a well. Um, I know they're a little bit smaller, but bloody hell, they're so easy to lamb. You know, direct on the feet, the circling. Um, you know gone up there and it's been three foot of snow and this little lamb will stick his head up and he'll run off after his mother and you think bloody hell yeah maybe keeping more of these would be an easier life um, but uh, yeah I think you have to have that little bit of difference in your business as well because you know the earlier lambs going off they do pay well um, you try to fatten everything off the grass and use as little concentrates as possible you know because I think you know, grass, grass is the biggest provider that we've got. And, um, you know, after being in New Zealand and seeing the way they utilise it out there, I think we've we've got yeah, a lot to learn from them as well and, and genetics and stuff. And, um, but, yeah, just, just producing that stuff, especially with a low carbon footprint with the grass as well, it, it all helps. Yeah, I, I think we could we could do do well from borrowing a few pages out of New Zealand's book. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and like you said earlier... Um, you know, you're saying there's nothing better than a Welsh mountain. You're on the Welsh mountain. That's what they're, yeah. as you said earlier, that's what they're for. Like, yeah. we, we yeah. try and, and, I, and I'm not sitting here calling out Scottish black faces. We have them ourselves. But I think the, the breeders have, have taken away from what the Scottish black face is, you know, and, and Welsh mountain, that doesn't seem to be something that's been hit too hard, uh, which, is, which is good to see. Yeah, we've got, we've got some really fantastic, um, top producers you know that produce the, the top end rams and that's a circle of people that will be buying but you know we're commercial i don't go out and spend 
30 or 40,000 on a ram. <laughs> I try and get them up for three, 400 quid. Um, but when you're buying, you know, 25 and 30 of them every year, you, you, you'd be crazy to go out and... Um, but then I still want to go there and buy a ram that I like, that, you know, takes my fancy that, you know, it's got that little bit of a je ne sais quoi that, you know, it's going to make a little bit of a difference. Um, my father's the same, you know, we go together. My uncle used to do as well, my cousin now, and everybody's got a little bit of a different taste. So um, you're quite lucky, really. We're, we're buying a little bit of everything sometimes, and then when you bring them home and, um, you know, put them to the use, especially... We keep about a hundred of the best ewes and put two rams with them, and, and you know we look at them, and then we take them to our local shows, and and yeah, it's a it's a bit of banter, it's a bit of fun, but it, yeah. but it's nice to produce something um, you know that you can be really proud of. Oh, 100 percent. And how how many ewes are you putting up Welsh Mountain top two? Uh, about three and a half thousand. No, how many each? Oh, oh, so <laughs> oh, yeah. they're, hey, they're not that busy, no. Um, <laughs> All depends on where they are. So we've got like bigger areas where we put a few more rams on, on there. Um, so I would save one to about every seventy on average. Right, pretty high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No good. And uh, jumping with the cows, the Welsh, you know. <laughs> What's that? The, the busy boys, the Welsh. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jumping over to cattle side of things, Gareth, what you're running there? 300, um, you're roughly. Yeah, so we've been running a limo bull. Um, we did have a, a blonde bull for many years, uh, but just we've gone back to the, the limo. And uh, this year I've pritzed uh, a few because we were buying in heifers every year. I've gone from the continentals, as in breeding mothers, um, into more herefords. Uh, yeah. I just, I've just, just had a few lucky escapes to be honest with you. And my father's getting older, and um, yeah, I just feel that you know you only get killed once in this job. So um, yeah, we've <laughs> gone to the, to the Herefords. Mind you, I've had one that's been a bit feisty uh, last few days, but that, but that's you know it comes with the territory. You know your cows, yeah. you just got to be careful. Um, so yeah, so we're 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 moving over to the Herefords. We will cross them with the uh, limo. Um, you know, to get that store cow or, you know, fat cow. We don't fatten all our cattle. Um, some are going in store. So we just see on the season and how much grass we've got. And if we can finish them, we finish them. If we don't, you know, off they go. And yeah. sometimes, to be honest with you, the stores pay better than the fat. Um, it's, it just all depends on the season. So we keep them all till about 28 months anyway. We run them through, um, keep them here. Um, over the, the first summer, so they, most of them are born in the spring. In the centre, then uh, we've got 220 acre, which they call the Frithov. Um, it's like an intermediate land from the lowland to the common mountain. Um, right. so, so they're there for the summer. Um, we're starting calving now, and then we go through to about May, and then they'll be up on them Frithov till about November bring them in, and then we wean them, and then calves are kept on one farm, the breeding cows come here, scan them again, and then we just see anything that's empty, it goes. We don't keep anything that's empty. Uh, we've come to the conclusion, you know, you've got to be, I know it sounds a bit, you know, cutthroat, but keeping an empty cow for another X amount 
you know, it's it's just not financially viable. So you're really playing catch up for the next two calves, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you, your first loss is your best loss sometimes. So then yeah. the census and land we've got in Conway then um, for that summer, and then the summer after they'll go to the land we've got in Anglesey. Um, we've got 400 acres there, and um, they're kept there then until they sold the stores or they're finished off. So, you know, it's a, it's a good rotation, and we're able to move them around. And you know what? I've got to say, I love cows. Um, I'm not in that kind of stupid way, but what they give back to the farm, uh, you know, what they really give back um, with the manure over the winter. So once we've had the silage here, we'll have a, we'll have a load of manure and then we put that on the, and I think sometimes we lose that, especially if you're keeping quite a lot of sheep, um, the cat will balance it out and you can see the difference where, you know, the cows have been on the intermediate land um, compared with just the sheep. So we try to move that around, you know, the, it's it's just, you know, mixing your farm and knowing the soils and making sure that, you know, you're feeding it in the right way. And I think cows are a big part of that. Yeah, and they play into that whole circular economy, which the, the let's say, the aunties completely forget about. They think methane, that's it. <laughs> yeah, uh, They don't yeah. look at the fact that we're putting, you know, fecal matter back into the fertiliser cycle. And yeah, it's, it's a... It's a good system, and it's why we all find ourselves promoting red meat. You know, it's it's not just a because we have it; it's because it makes sense, um, which we'll go on to probably at some point. Anyway, Gareth, but one thing I, I really want to mention is uh, you mentioned the carne die. Am I saying that right? Probably wrong. Yeah, uh, ponies. Yeah, um, which is for those of you listening, uh, this is it's quite interesting. This stuff. I, I first spoke to Gareth God, probably not last October, but. The October before, best part of 18 months ago, and uh, and you mentioned this, I was I was quite taken aback by it, and I've done a lot of background reading onto them. So, uh, could you tell us a bit about the the famous and majestic looking in a lot of your photos ponies? <clears throat> yeah, so again, my family's been custodians, guardians of these ponies for over 375 years. Um, there's 220 breeding mares left in the world, and they run semi-feral up here on the Cadmere Mountain Range, uh, which is 27,000 acres. They go back to the Celtic times. So um, when the Romans were building the road up there, the ponies were there. And um, they're steeped in history, you know. And um, I always say they're a part of Welsh living history. And they would have roamed all over Wales and most probably into England and maybe up into Scotland and down into Cornwall at some stage. And, you know, because of their financial viability and people taking more um, farmland, um, they just withered and died and people didn't keep them. But this is a little bit of a Jurassic Park. I don't know why, because uh, these ponies have never been financially viable for any of our family. But I think there's something not quite right with any of, of uh, our family. And that's why we've kept them. Because, because, yeah, we love a bit of a chase and a bit of a, a gathering once a year. But do you know what? I'm just so glad that I've, you know, been part of keeping them and making sure that they're there for the next generation. The last thing I would have wanted would to be the generation to have lost them. And it was very close for us to, to, to lose them forever with, you know, the European legislation and passports and, and all that kind of thing. So if they've taken a lot of my time. I don't know how my wife is still with me, to be honest with you. The, the fights I've had for them ponies and for other things, um, 
sometimes uh, it really, really frustrates her, but I never let go. I'm like a terrier with a bone. I just hold on to it until, until I hear it crack. <laughs> and uh, That's the kind of person I am. But we were lucky to get the delegation for the ponies. So the ponies have the rights to run on the mountains without a chip or a passport. It's only when we take them off and move them to somewhere else that they'll need a chip and a passport. Um, and Which will never be part of the plan, I assume. Sorry? Yeah. Moving them off will never be part of the plan. No. Yeah, we do. Well, we gather once a year and we'll take some of the old right. men off. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to manage them. It's, it's, yeah. it's management in a way that's um, as far removed as you could. So we're taking some of the males off and some of the older mares that we don't think that are going to make it. But not every time, you know, sometimes you look at a mare and you think, you know, you deserve to die up there because, you know, you've lived your life and it's not fair for us to move them. And for me, it's a celebration of that pony's life sometimes when I see a body up there because it's the circle of life. You wouldn't see anybody on the, you know, on the savannas carrying dead bodies because they they know them dead bodies would be feeding other creatures. And once they finished feeding, you know, the the birds of prey and the foxes and the, every other, you know, they then feed the soil as well. They go back into the soil and how it should be really that circle of life. But today, you know, it's more difficult because there's all kinds of social media and people taking pictures and oh my god there's a dead body over there and I can't stand it and you know I, I try to educate people and I try to explain that you know we celebrate that dead mm -hmm. body it's lived its life and you know it's been a good life and it's died there and it's feeding something else so there's a there's a, there's a whole massive story behind the ponies really that we're learning a lot more about them. Um, we've had about six PhD students up doing different theses. And, um, you know, we found out uh, the social structure of these ponies um, was so amazing that it wasn't the stallion that was, you know, the, the big boss. It was always the older mare. Uh, it makes a right. lot of sense. It's the same in our house, really. <laughs> <laughs> but don't tell the it. older mare. Oh, we will be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's it's the sensible thing, isn't it? You know, it, it's it's the old mare that would know where to take the whole herd during the snowstorm, you know, or, or if there was a problem. And these are the things that you understand as you go older and you, you're taking more interest. I do anyway. I'm 54 now and I'm, I'm enjoying um, watching them, taking pictures of them, sharing, you know, their lives with other people so people can have an understanding of how important these ponies are. And there's, a, there's another thing that we couldn't quite understand at one stage was, there's a lot of chuff here, a brand, Goyskov, they call it. It's a, it's a very rare crow. And um, I love it because I'll sit out on the front veranda there in the summer having a coffee and they'll fly from the quarry and the, the direct route is right over my house. And then they head for the mountains just behind me. And you can hear them calling and there's a lot of people have done studies about them and, you know, they couldn't understand why there were so many and how, why they were thriving. But one of the reasons is because of the ponies, because the ponies are grazing differently to the sheep and we never give them any uh, injections or wormers. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're totally organic. So, of course, they're eating the grass and they're pooing it out the other end. But once that poos on the ground, all kinds of invertebrates go there to break it down. So all these insects and invertebrates are breaking it down. 
and that's feeding the chaff. And that, again, you know, is another circle. Another circle maybe 10, 15 years ago, we wouldn't have understood. And, and, and it's nice just to hear it and see it. Okay, it comes from professionals and scientists, but then, you know, some hillbilly farmer can tell that story because, you know, it's there in black and white. But, but getting that research to back it up, and you can see, you can know exactly what you're watching that night, and you're sitting with beer as they fly over. You know what that means, like that. There's, there's, there's merits to that, and the the whole. Oh, it's not nice to see a dead animal. It it goes against what those people stand for. They stand for a natural lifestyle. They stand for whatever. And there's nothing more natural than dying where you've spent your entire life, and then going into that ecosystem as fertilizer, as uh, nutrition, as whatever. Like that, it's. It's perfect, really. But yeah, there's there's going to be detractors and everything, isn't there? Do do, they, do those crows cause any issues with lambs, Gareth? Or no? No, they're, they're no. very very small. To be honest with you, they're, right. yeah, they're, they're lovely. Just have a look at them. They've got red beaks and red legs. They're they're absolutely beautiful, and they've got a very distinctive call. I'll I'll try and give you the call. That's how they sound. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some way will give me a sleep in for that, but uh, that's what it sounds like to me on a Sunday morning after a few beers on a Saturday. Chris Packham's listening, and he'll be in touch with Royalty Kitchen next week. Um, no. Chris, <laughs> we, don't need to, we, don't, we don't need to get there. We can sit here and talk for an hour. Um, for, for those of you listening, uh, guys that, that listen to podcasts um, and don't know about sort of what my stuff is based on, what Royalty Kitchen started as, it was basically just. I did a master's in food security and I really focused in on the sort of importance of sourcing local and <clears throat> using uh, seasonal foodstuffs, uh, red meat in places like where Gareth is in Wales, where I am uh, in Scotland, uh, milk where I'm based in the south of Scotland at the minute, that sort of thing. Um, and Gareth does this fantastically as well. He mentioned he went through a few things that he does earlier uh, and one of them was that he's got bees, he's got veg as well and it, it's good to follow Gareth as well. He shows a lot of what happens when on that calendar? And, and I've always really enjoyed it. But could you tell us about the bees, Gareth? I've always been interested in bees and wanted to go for it. And my mum did try at one point and she got a sting and she was heavily allergic. Uh, but yeah, did you choose to put bees on at first or? Bloody hell no. Nothing to do with me. <laughs> right. Okay. Got you. So the, the wife went on a bee course um, to a local... Um, well, the university is, it's called Hembas, and um, they do like courses there. And um, she had a friend in the village to help her, and she kept three hives. And then um, she was stung one day really badly, and she says, oh, we've got to get rid of them. And that's the time that I took the hives over. And, um, yeah, I'm very lucky now. I've got a, a lady, a, a Russian lady, that moved uh, to North Wales. And um, yeah, she's in charge now, so she watches after the bees and the hives. But I think again, you know, they're very, very important. Um, they're part of our ecosystem. We forget sometimes, you know, that without these bees, we'd have nothing. Mm -hmm. These pollinators are so, so important. And um, I love home produced honey on my porridge in the morning. I just absolutely love it. And at this moment, I couldn't tell you how many pots we've sold. Um, for Zena, um, she has a lot of hives, and um, I couldn't tell you how many, but she's got a lot of hives in Conway and in the surrounding areas. And um, yeah, so 
you know, what she was producing then, I put them in my honesty box there. So she helps me and I help her. And um, yeah, that's how the agricultural system works, really, you know. And, and I think, again, that that's important that we can have people, you know, with a skill set. And she has got a really good skill set that she's brought from Russia with you. Um, and that's what we've maybe lost a lot, you know, of that skill set. Um, she's been making woolen rugs for me. Uh, so I've been shearing the sheep and giving her, as you know yourself, 16, 18 pence per fleece. So I was giving her the fleeces and she's made an amazing woolen rug to begin with. And now she started her own business and um, about two months ago, she finished a jumper for me, a woolen jumper, which is, uh, yeah, been worn by everybody. I can't even go for a pint. Everybody wants to put it on. It's like, I think that jumper's getting more famous than me at the moment. But it is, yes. I, I was actually, I asked Rian if, if the jumper could come on instead of you, but he said I'd be you. <laughs> Making the jumper have more sense. But it was, it's a great feeling, you know. It was an absolutely amazing feeling. I've always wanted to do that, you know, to leave that sheep on the mountain for 12 months, to bring it off, for me to shear it. And for her to make something that I can wear on my back, to go back on that mountain, you know, warm, um, waterproof. I'm not saying it's, you know, 100% waterproof, but I was in a, in a really good shower the other day and I thought, oh, I'm going to go out here. I won't be able to move because it's a heavy jumper anyway. But do you know what? It wasn't bad at all. It wasn't bad at all. I came home, I had to dry it, of course, but uh, there's so much more to wool that we have forgotten the, them, them skills that we need to bring back. The the rugs she's making at the moment are truly flipping amazing. She made me a pair of socks as well. Um, and, and they're like slippers. Yeah. Felt, felt, they're wool, so they, they felt the bottoms and then they make a shoe out of it. And I was looking at some stuff and they can take you to minus 40 degrees, these shoes, you know, made out of a natural material. Let's bring them skills back, you know, let's add value to them products we've got because you know, we've got millions of sheep in this country and we're giving the wool away. We have to utilise it. We have to start to promote it, but we have to wear it ourselves. You know, it'd be no good for yeah. me to, to sit in a fleece saying that, you know, but I've been able to find somebody and other people that are coming in on board and, and getting involved with it. And that may be a big, big driver going forward. Um, I'd be talking to um, Cool Wool and Wool Cool and they mm -hmm. do insulation and they do packaging. So uh, hopefully this year we're going to be supplying them with our wool. I've just built a shepherd herd, well, my mate has Pedro, and we've insulated it all with wool from there. And honestly, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. So I'm trying <coughs> to live that life as well, you know, not talk about it, I'm trying to live it as well. Yeah. No, excellent product. I mean, I've seen you do this as well. We do it at home. Use it as a sort of membrane for crops. Yeah, keeps your keeps your moisture, keeps your temperature in brilliantly. What a lot of folk don't know is wool sits about forty-five to fifty percent carbon. So you yeah. take three kilos off a yow, you're taking a kilo and a half, and you're you're shearing four thousand a year. That's that's the best part of eight thousand kilos of carbon being or eight ton if you want to look at it that way being hidden away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and for those of you listening, check out Welsh Cottage by Zena on uh, on Facebook. Really interesting. I follow a lot. Absolutely love her page. Really interesting. Um, yeah, 
no, a, a brilliant product. And and from what I understand, a lot of sort of new built houses can't use wool as ventilation, not ventilation, as insulation. That'd be weird yeah. using it as ventilation yeah. uh, because uh, there's a sort of movement to have households vegan, which, yeah, we, we could get into that if we wanted. But um, if you're really looking at it from an environmental perspective, it, it seems... Seems somewhat backwards, but I thought we weren't going to use that swear word. Sorry, sorry. I, I know I, the V I'm, word. I'm supposed, to, <laughs> I'm supposed to have a profanityless podcast, but here we are. <laughs> no, listen, we, we've got to be sensible about this. And um, whilst government have put any new builds they're using or building now, it's got to be wool. So you know, it's plastic. Brilliant. Whatever your diet is, and whatever your you know your beliefs, wool is definitely the best product. And it needs to be utilised, um, and you know, I, personal choices and dietary choices is something you know that's somebody. But if you want to help, you know, this climate crisis, wool's a lot better than anything. So we mm -hmm. have to be focused. We have to be pushing our message out there. We have to be honest with people. And I think you know, the vegan movement, in my opinion. Um, is a very misled by a business-oriented propaganda, which has got a lot of money behind it. Um, but that's my, and um, you know, yeah, I mean, matter a lot to me. <laughs> I've I've said a few times that that the merits to vegans veganism in quite a lot of situations is high. I just think when we're looking at where you source food from, for example, in this country, that is not one of them. <laughs> it is it's sort of the, the best way I can put it without chatting about it for half an hour. Um, when I first spoke to you, Gareth, we spoke uh, on the phone for, for quite some time. And one of the things you mentioned was 2013, I think, the snow. Yeah, um, yeah we was, was it late March? Yeah, 22nd of March. Yeah. yeah, so it was the exact same one. We had the exact same. We had... Uh, Mum and Dad will be listening to this and saying, Wallace, you said the wrong number, but for the most part, about 300 animals, that includes scanned, still fetuses, um, yeah. unaccounted for. Uh, it was horrible. Um, could you tell us a bit about how it hit you? Yeah, it hit us on that evening. Um, you know, you think, you look at the weather forecast, it, it didn't look like it was going to hit us that bad. Yeah, it looked like a bit of snow, you know, 22nd of March, don't even think it's going to hit you at that kind of, uh, you know, scenario. But it was the perfect storm for here. So the 27,000 acres of um, Padmeda Mountain can hold a lot of snow when it falls. It but, yeah, but it was it was the wind that was behind it. So the wind was blowing down into our valley, which was the crazy bit. So this, this valley and the two adjacent valleys were hit really bad with it. So it wasn't just because of the snow, it was the wind as well. We had some areas, um, valleys of 40-foot snow drifts, um, which hadn't been heard of since, you know, my father was a boy. We had a lot of sheep up on the um, Frithov, which were the, you know, the land intermediate from the mountain, no sheep on the mountain. Uh, and we started lambing with the cross beds down on the lowland. So it was... It was absolutely crazy. That evening, I would try to make it up to open the gates because, uh, yeah, I knew there'd be a lot of sheep there. And I made it three quarters of the way and I just couldn't make it. The snow was so 
so fine, I couldn't get my breath. And I had to turn around. That's one of the only times I think in my life that I'd, I'd really had to just give up because I knew there was no way I was going to make it. So next morning, it was quite surreal, really. Um, it was like something out of a bloody Apple <laughs> film, you know, with snow everywhere. And, but there wasn't any snow in the village, nothing at all. And then you came up to here and we had five or six foot and then you went up a little bit higher and you went up to eight to ten foot and it was all drifted. So, as you know, the sheep will just go and they'll put the bums against the walls and get shelter. So there was a lot of sheep missing. We opened the gates, got what we could down, fed what we could. Um, and I was in the middle of uh, just getting a commission to film uh, a programme with the BBC called The, the Hill Fam. So I had a film crew with me as well, which was kind of crazy, really, in, in, the, in, the, in the time it was. And uh, it was unreal. That morning, I had a phone call from ITV to say, oh, could we come up and do an interview? I said, well, listen, we're really, really in the middle of it. If you could, Literally it, snowed under. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you're, <laughs> yeah. Just, you're just going to follow it. And, that, and that's what it was, you know. Um, and I did about six or seven different um, TV channels uh, over the next two weeks and it was just a massive game changer for me we we lost about 80 U's here which doesn't sound a lot but I couldn't tell you how many aborted how yeah. many died you know um, you, you, you know yourself um, on a number like that you tended to bury your head in the snow so that you didn't know what died and just you know try to make the best out of a worse situation. And the hard thing was, you know, sometimes you we were going up, always the gun on your back, you couldn't get any vehicles up there, or, you know, walking up. Um, you know, there'd be two sheep. And, you know, you had to pick the strongest one because by the time you'd taken that one down and, and come back, the crows and the foxes would have had the other one, it would have been a slow death. So, you know, you had to take it out. And, and there's something quite, I don't know, quite warlike about, um, the blood and the snow and and and, and it, but I don't know. I tended to switch myself off. I tended to to um, not think about it. Just just do the decisions that had to be done there and then. Um, and you know, did you do the right decisions? You can never be a hundred percent sure. But you know, gut feeling and in my head. I hope I did the best that I could for my animals. And um, it was absolutely really, really difficult. I've never lost so much weight in such a short <laughs> amount of time. But, um, yeah, my, my wife was really worried, you know, that when she's seen some of the, the footage later. I never watched anything, any of the, of the television or the programmes or anything for about eight to ten months after. Um, I couldn't. It, it was re really weird. Um, and the ponies were, the, were one of the hardest ones as well, you know, because they were, same as the sheep, you know, they were just beginning to fall. And there was a there was a mare, a really beautiful mare, um, and she stood above a dead foal for three days. And, you know, but every day, and I was thinking, you know, and that, and that really made me think, you know, uh, about nature and how brutal it can be. And we fought for a delegation um, to have the right to bury the ponies up there. 
and uh, took a lot of time and uh, I did a lot of radio interviews and I'd like to thank the BBC and Jason Mohammed. He was he was really, really um, a big help. You know, he's, a, he's a presenter on Radio Wales and he gave us the opportunity to do, uh, you know, live broadcasts and talk about the situation. The Welsh Government then gave us the right to bury the ponies up there because, as you know, we've got no right to bury our dead stock. But it was the right thing to do. And the day we buried them was a very difficult day. We lost about, yeah, about 70 ponies and 30-odd, I think it was about 30-odd foals. It was about 100, 110 altogether bodies. And they were put into two holes. Uh, all the society came up and all the friends and local farmers came up to help with tractors, bikes and everything. And we had a little dig, mini digger up there as well to do the hole. And... That day, uh, I was coming off the mountain, and I've got to be honest with you, um, I'm a kind of guy that my glass is always overflowing. You know, I'm always, I always love life, and I always. But that day was tough because, you know, as somebody that lives on that mountain, you see these ponies every day. You see the little family um, societies, their blocks, and putting the men in that in that hole. You know, some of them were in the middle of giving birth, and some of them, you know, giving birth and crows and foxes and uh, it was just carnage really so I was coming in and turning into the house now my father always sits in the window and um, could see him calling me in so in I went and he said what's the matter with you and I said well it's been a tough day but you know, it's been a tough day he put in them ponies he says sit down there he said he said go and get the whiskey and uh, he said pour a glass of whiskey so we sat there with a glass, glass of whiskey and he said listen you have to understand that this is survival of the fittest, he said. I've seen this in 1947 and 1963. My father had seen 200 ponies die frozen on their feet on that mountain. And he said, this is what it takes sometimes. Nature can be cruel. But what it's done is taken out the old, the weak, and anything with a problem. And I didn't really look at it like that, to be honest with you, until he said it. And what brought that back to me was when we were gathering them ponies at the end of the summer, in the autumn, the beginning of the winter. I'd never gathered them ponies and they've looked so well. And it shows you sometimes, you know, life is cruel, but it's cruel to be kind. That's why these ponies have survived there since the Celtic times. And, and that, to me, is something that I will take with me for the rest of my life. Um, you know, that positivity in that dark space. So always there will be a light, but you have to look for it. And sometimes you have to be guided to find that light by somebody else. And um, that day was my father that, you know, gave me that light so I could see there was a positivity in that death and destruction of the day. Yeah, quite a good, solemn story, really. Uh, and yeah, Quite a good message from your old boy. Um, yeah, it's it's. I think we we look at management of stock and management of everything and breeding and and looking at the sort of science of it. And as no matter how far that science and research goes, it will never be as clever as nature. Um, and that's not taken away from that science or research at all. You know, that's just nature's billions of years old, and it knows what it's doing. Um, 
very interesting that they were in the best shape they've ever been in come that come that uh, gather. I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2 cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today, The Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. Um, you mentioned TV a couple of times there, Gareth, and you're not someone that is uh, not used to the silver screen. Um, family Farm, Hill Farmer, Hill Farmer, Hill, yeah, the Hill Farmer. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about, how did, how did that sort of stuff start? Oh, yeah, crazy really. It started in, I think it was 2005 I did the first thing. Um, it was called Big Country with the BBC. And it was, they were following a year in the National Park. And I was just a, a piece, you know, a bit piece in that as we were setting up the first Grazers PLC. Um, and um, really enjoyed it. And one of the guys that were filming there, producer, cameraman, said, well, yeah, you're, you're pretty good. You, you're not phased with it. But it was it was just somebody sticking something in front of me. And I was just speaking what, what I thought. I, I You know, I'm not the type of guy that gets nervous. If, there's one thing I've learned is, you know, my old man says, uh, speak to Prince Charles or the guy that's brushing the, the roads in Klamavech and the same. And I've had the opportunity to do both, you know. So yeah. uh, I, I know that feeling. Then in 2009, we did a programme, a Welsh programme called Ferm Factor. And it was 10 farmers going head to head to win an Isuzu pickup. And it was the biggest piss up I've ever had. We, <laughs> we, we, we travelled around Wales doing crazy kinds of things, you know. And it was the first Ferm Factor they'd ever done. They'd had the idea from Ireland and it was just a absolute buzz. And I loved it. But this this is how fate works. And this is this is the crazy thing. So the girl that was researching and working on that um, phoned me up about 12 months. I didn't win the pickup, by the way. I came fourth. Um, she phoned me up and she said, Gah, there's this amazing BBC uh, series coming to North Wales. And I'm sure this would suit you a bit part in it. I was going, oh, okay, that's cool. She said, but you'll have to do an interview. I said, no, yeah, you have to do an interview. So there was an interview in the place called the Gallery in Carnarvon. Like, you know, it's a beautiful building and, you know, very, very posh. And uh, where all these people were going to get into it. Of course, the production team was there. So off I went. I'd seen a few people that I knew there. So, I, I you know, I thought, right, these must be trying for the same job. So in I went to this room and uh, there was a guy quite similar to you had a beard and uh, yeah, looked a bit miserable. Not I'm saying that you do, but he's a good looking <laughs> gentleman is what you mean. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's the one. And he had these two very attractive ladies on either side of him um, and they just asked me questions. So it was a programme called Snowdonia 1890. The BBC were taking two families back to that period in time. And um, I was going to be, if I got the job, the shepherd on the 1890 and the adjacent farmer who'd be helping them. So they were giving me lots of different questions. And then he popped up with the last question. And this guy was so, so dry, you know, he, 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 not smiling. 
And he goes, I'm, go- I'm asking everybody this. I said, um, if I gave you the job of the shepherd for Snowdonia 1890, what would be your biggest downfall for that period? Well, I, I just thought, and I went, well, I think I'd be too good looking for the year. And I said, as a joke, you know. <laughs> Well, the two girls nearly fell off their chairs laughing. But he, he didn't even smile. He was deadpan. And he said, yeah, we'll let you know in two weeks. So I came out of there. I nailed this interview until I had to mess it up right at the end. And that, that's kind of me, you know, that, that um, doesn't matter how serious I am. I've got, I've got to have a little bit of a joke and a little bit of a laugh with things. Um, that's, that's the way I've always been. So I came home and I said to the wife, she was so excited, she was so excited, and she went ballistic. She went, That's you all over, you do everything right, and then you mess it all up. And I was going, Oh, okay, right. But two weeks down the road, and uh, the phone call came, and I had the job. And do you know what? It was an amazing experience. I was only supposed to do five days on it, but I did 19 days, and I was a big part of the production and loved every single minute of it. But it taught me something. It taught me the power of television and how much you could make a difference by sitting in a little box in somebody's living room. And that really made me think that I needed to push more of what we do into that little box. As somebody that was, you know, quite outspoken, quite... Um, never sitting on any fences, you know, being... being I don't know if you, you, it's like my might. Some people like you, some people don't, you know. Um, I've, I've got a really good bunch of friends and a really strong family around me. And the people that really know me um, know what I mean when I say these things. And that's the important thing. If you've got that nucleus around you, protecting you, um, you know, that's fantastic. You know, so, so one night I'm in the Ritz, doing a, uh, an acceptance speech, speech and then the next day I'm home dagging sheep's asses and that's the kind of life that I kind of like, you know. Um, so it swings around about in it and yeah, I've done from Farmer and the Food Chain to The Milkman, um, done quite a few programmes after, worked with people like Jack Whitehall, uh, Gareth Edwards, Michael Ball, all them last year. Uh, it's It's been absolutely amazing um i've got to meet some fantastic people and i enjoy it but enjoy it to the fact that i don't depend on it and i think that's important when you depend on it you might sometimes have to toe the line that you can't be controversial or say things that you know that you believe that needs to be said and that's where i think now i have a bigger voice on social media because with everything that's happened I'm quite fortunate to have all these people that follow and, um, you know, are supportive. Not everybody, you know, it's, it's never, you're never going to be everybody's cup of tea, but you've got to be true to yourself. And um, there's, there's times that I've done, you know, like, like the FMP gates, you know, and, and done that rant on things. And, and my wife's got, oh my God, that's it. We'll never work with any television station again in the world, you know. The next day, there's some an American company phoning me up. Can you do this interview with us? We love that FNP. <laughs> and so, you know, one gate shuts and another one opens. And, and, and they're the things maybe that 
I never bothered me that I've always lived life on the edge and always enjoyed what I do. So I don't want to change, you know, um, yeah. I'm too I'm too long in the tooth to to change, to be honest. You're that you're that uh, yo with a missing tooth or the missing eye. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, no, it's and I think that that's there's television seems to be a hard thing for people and people that are pushing for it to be in television or, or involved in it. A lot of them get so soured by it. If you can be in the position you are, Gareth, and sort of be able to do it when you need to and also when it's good, great. Um, but if you sort of get tied down to it, it can be quite, I don't know, overcoming, I guess. <clears throat> um, well, what one really good presenter said to me, you're only as good as the last job, and, you know, made, made me think about what, what he said there. And, you know, he had the mortgage to pay, you know, kids to, to, to keep and a wife. And... Um, you could see why he was trying so hard. And for me, you know, I, I could go for a few beers after we'd finish. I wouldn't worry about doing the lines and just and just relax and enjoy it. And yeah. everybody that knows me, you know, they, they know now not to give me a script. They say, right, get these three points in and put it in your own words. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's how it works for me. And <laughs> and yeah, and that's happy days because I couldn't put somebody else's words onto anything. And um, you know, if the message is right. I'll say it and say it in my own words. You you can't, I don't think you can write an exact script for somebody else. Because I would say, like, you know, the wall is white, different to how you would. Like, it, we all say things differently. And if I was told how to say something, people that follow me would be like, hmm, it's not how he says it. Same way with you, you know. Um, I like the idea of get these points across. Yeah. Uh, that makes makes much more sense. I believe as well, you know, I think we've been, as an industry, we've been hit quite hard by the mainstream media um, in a negative way, especially livestock agriculture. Um, and, I, and I feel frustrated about it and, and I haven't been afraid to talk about it. You know, the Panorama programme. Um, when you look back at a lot of the things, things don't match up there. And um, it's frustrating. It's frustrating when you see these things. And, you know, um, series George Monbeer did as well about um, farming. I think, yeah, we've got some bad practices, don't get me wrong, but at the end of the day, we've got some bloody good practices as well. And the majority of these people are working damn hard to produce food at an affordable price for people and watch after our environment and make sure that our animals and our, you know nature and our wildlife is kept the way it is and it's not easy it's not easy and when you've got you know cheap food being imported and we've got to go against that and cut corners well something's got to give something's got to give and i think you know it's it's time we had a farming food revolution in this country and we started to bring people back onto the land so they have an understanding of what we're producing here and, the, you know, how good it is, how good our grass-fed lamb, beef, you know, wh whatever we're producing, we, we need to get that showcased. And, and for me, you know, I'm working with a few really clever people now, above my pay grade by a long way, but they're amazing people because they want to involve me for some crazy reason. I think they like my passion or whatever it is, but, um, you know, I want to put this together. I... I want to make a few different programs about farmers 
that are doing a bloody good job. And, and not just farmers, but people in the countryside that are utilising a lot of our byproducts as well, you know. I want to go out there and showcase it. I've, I've pitched quite a few things to different television companies, but they don't seem to be interested, really. It's not, it's not the in thing at the moment. So, you know what? We're going to put some people together and we're, we're going to do it ourselves. Mm. And we've got the platform where we can share it. And I think that's important today, that social media and, and you know, that platform can open so many doors and you can say what you want. You're not going to be edited, you know, and that's another thing that really frustrates me that, you know, that they've sat there for three hours with a certain person and they've given him three minutes and then three minutes aren't really reflecting what that guy said over three hours. And that, you know, I, because somebody that's worked in television, I understand that. I understand that. And sometimes that's not fair. Um, I know it's not all rose-tinted uh, glasses in, in our industry. And we have got things that, you know, we need to change and we need to... But 99% of the people that I know in this industry, bloody there, I'm working hard, I'm trying to do the best. And... You know, to have a hard time after, especially these milk boys with a programme like that, it's got to be disheartening. You know, that, that farmer now is selling his cows off every week. You imagine that. He was throwing his milk down the drain because that night they pulled the plug on him. Mm-hmm. The red tractor did exactly the same. You know, that guy had nowhere to go. The bills to pay. They have absolutely nailed that family farm. Absolutely nailed them. You know, is that fair? No, it's not in my opinion. I, on the panorama thing, I haven't actually even seen it because I know what's going to happen with these things. Now, for the most part, what happens in these films is the practices in question are wrong, but it does a sort of tarring of the same brush type affair, um, which doesn't doesn't really help anything, but drama sells, doesn't it? <laughs> that's, the, that's the issue. Um, yeah, and, and the problem is as well, you know, and don't take it... I, I'm absolutely dead against what they did on the farm. And I know for a fact that one of the guys had an instant sack once he'd seen what he did. But, you know, the other two were activists in filming there. So, um, yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. You know, we've we've yeah. got to be careful what we say. But at the end of the day, is that fair for that, you know, family um, who was employing people that, you know, had no chance of controlling really? And that's the scary bit. And that's that's what happened when people want cheap food. Cheap food will come at a cost to something else. And, and that's has what to. we've got to, to realise. And until people are paying a fair price for what we're producing, um, we will have these problems. And oatmeal and soya meal, milk and all these, you know, so-called lifesavers, they ain't going to make a difference because we've got a great country to produce grass, plenty of rainfall, plenty of the green stuff, and we need to utilise that and produce it into top-quality protein milk. You know, how much different byproducts we're getting out of that, you know, white gold is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And we have to utilise it and we have to showcase it. But when we have a programme like that, you can see why people would turn away from it. And we have to spin that around and hopefully, you know, keep pushing our positive stories and get people onto farms and get them understanding that it's not all like that. 
Yeah, and, and that cost thing is so important. You know, someone's got to bear that brunt. And with, with as of 2024 to 2028, the subsidy has been half each year from what I understand is how it's going to work. With that coming, people are in for a shock at either the price of the food or the quality. It's, it's, not, it's going to be a worrying time to see sort of where we go. And let's hope it's a positive, a positive move. But um, yeah, I don't know what that means. Um, to be honest, and yeah, I, yeah, I really don't want to answer on that. It, it'll be interesting to see well, what we're, happens. We're at most probably the biggest crossroads for agriculture since the Second World War, or maybe yeah. ever. To be honest with you, and I think you know policymakers within government have really got to get this right, and they've got to go out and start talking to farmers. They've got to start understanding how different farms work, because my farm's not going to be the same as next door's farm, you know, and and that's where the problem is. If they want food production environmentally friendly and sustainable, you know we've we've either got to be paid to help to get on with it, or we have to double or triple in price what we're producing. Yeah. Now, I'm really annoyed to see some of the stuff that's going on in Wales at the moment. I don't know if it's happening up there with you, but you know we're getting these big companies coming in, buying farms, swathes of land, you know, family farms planting trees of it, offsetting their businesses, their crap. So they're moving their crap from one place to another place um, and offsetting that by planting these trees, which will not be taking that carbon in for another 30 years in any major way, which I just think it's absolutely carrying water over a river. It's a ridiculous thing to do and we need to address it. I think trees are fine in the right places but we can have trees, livestock, and, you know, we can do this, but we have to have a conversation about it. We have to be engaged with these policymakers. You just can't have these people ticking boxes because they want to plant 80 million trees in X amount of times. You know, we'll have exactly what they did after the Second World War. We've got conifer plantations up here that were planted in the 1950s that are getting cut down now, that are financial disasters, and all they've been is wildlife deserts and giving us acid rain, and that land's going to take years and years and years to, you know, to fix itself. And is that the answer? No, it's not the answer. It's working with people and understanding the landscape and the different um, habitats we've got here. And, you know, I just wish some of these politicians some of these policymakers would get off their asses and come out of their ivory towers and talk to the people that are working the land, that they've got hands in the soil, so they have an understanding of how to go forward. Yeah, and I mean, when we consider monoculture, there's not really anything as close to a monoculture that we really farm in this country than an intensely newly ploughed place for, for trees. Um, yes, of course, it offers opportunities for birds and, and, and bugs and stuff, but for the most part, it is very... And yeah, and, and you're saying, what's it like up here? Uh, the guy who owns ASOS, or is ASOS, Anders Paulsen, uh, a, a Danish guy, he's bought up, he's the biggest landowner in Scotland, and he's basically doing the same thing. Uh, and I've, I've spoke a few times on the R2Cast about, if, if I am a rich person, and I buy this area of land with trees on it, nothing has got better. <laughs> I just yeah. look better. You know, that's, yeah. that's what's happening. Um. Yeah, and, and we, we could get into carbon credits and such like, which I genuinely think is a scary prospect, I think. Yeah, totally it, agree with you. And greenwashing yeah. and all these, you know, carbon credits and all this, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just a scary time to be. When... No, it makes a lot of sense. And you're probably wondering what has just happened. How am I suddenly in a t-shirt and not a hoodie? And as you'll notice in a minute, Gareth's in a different t-shirt. We have a bit of an internet issue. Uh, he's also just tensed his arms uh, to look hench there, but because <laughs> I'm the one talking, no one's actually seen that. So just me. <laughs> um, yeah, Gareth, just it's been here. It's been great to chat. Not spoken to you for a while. Uh, and to sit down and sort of have a long chat again has been good. Um, should maybe do it over a whiskey sometime. I wouldn't say no to that. Uh, it's really here in the way there. But all of these podcasts finish in the exact same way as each other. I've got two questions for you to finish off. The first one being, um, where do you see yourself in five years? What do you think will be happening then? And the second one is, if you had any tips for people getting into farming, and it's actually quite cool for yourself to talk about getting into telly as well, what would they be? Um, so the first one is, um, yeah, I'm going to sell off the farm um, to some carbon credit guys so they can plant trees. Then I'm off to Barbados with Mrs. Jimmy, so I'm going to be drinking uh, pina coladas on the beach. Um, no, all jokes aside, I think where I see ourselves on the farm is building the immersive um, tours a little bit more. You know, making sure there's a future for my children here in whatever way there is. Uh, my utopia would be for all three of them to, you know, have a living off here. It's really, really important to enjoy what you're doing every day. And I think your health is your wealth as well. You know, that you, you've got your health and that's physical and mental health. And this moment in time, I'm really enjoying, you know, stuff. I think this pandemic has opened um, another door for me. Uh, a door that maybe um, I'd forgotten about, you know, that it's not all about the television work and the travelling. It was nice to be at home with my family doing what I really love, which is farming. I know it sounds mad. Um, and, and, yeah, opportunities are there to be taken. You know, when them doors open, it's up to you if you want to walk through them. And that's what I believe with television I was very, very lucky. You know, I did have them opportunities, but I usually kick them doors open with like, like you walking into a saloon. I never cared. I never cared what was on the other side. I just went for it, you know, and I, and I think there's a lot of great young farmers out there at the moment. There's some fantastic, good, strong voices, you know, that, are, you know, showing a lot of sense and balance and, you know, putting us in a really strong position we have to have them foundations um, to go forward. We need them foundations for the customers and the consumers to understand. And I think we don't need mainstream media as much as we did. We've got our phones in our pockets. We've got YouTube. We've got Facebook. We've got Twitter. We've got you know TikTok and Snapchat and all these platforms that we can utilize. And every single farmer has got a role to play. Every single person that lives in the country has a role to play. Over 80% of people live in cities now, and we need to reconnect them. We need to bridge that gap and bridge it in a way that's um, educational. And I think as well, um, it needs to be a little bit of humour in there yeah. and, and, and sarcasm, but uh, as well, they're not our enemy. They're our, our friends, and I think sometimes people, not all people, but some people are more to pity than to blame, that they've been sucked into a, a misleading propaganda 
machine that's, you know, just brainwashed them. And Hitler or Himmler said, you tell a lie enough times and people will believe it. And I think, you know, the stuff that's been coming out of a lot of mainstream media, a lot of newspapers as well, has been very detrimental and um, hasn't helped us, especially in the livestock sector. And I think we, we have to channel that now together as an industry from the uplands of Scotland to the, you know, the, the lowlands of East Anglia. All farmers need to pull together and make it one voice. We need, yeah. unions. we need the unions fighting our causes. We need to be pushing our MPs. We need to be talking about seasonal, sustainable, environmentally friendly. And we should be growing more of our own food. The government should be putting money into farmers, putting polytunnels up and, and, you know, getting children out on farms, having an understanding how our food is grown. And whatever your diet is, you know, we can feed you. We have to remember that. And, uh, you know, in 30 or 40 years, trying, yeah, maybe things will change. But at this moment in time, I think livestock are a massive part of feeding our nation in a sustainable way. And uh, we need to get that message out there that we need a good balance. So that farming food revolution is ready to roll, I reckon. And we should be all getting behind it, all putting our voices to it, making sure that we you know, engage with our consumer and customers and with politicians and the people that are making these policies. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you, um, you're well known, Gareth, to sort of talk out against negative education like that impacts agriculture. Um, but I think even the more worrying and maybe more scary one is the sort of lack of education. You're talking about getting uh, getting the information to kids and, and education and that sort of thing into schools and one thing I've said on the podcast a couple of times is uh, a person that I'm aware of, a uh, wee boy, was given some eggs and they'd basically, his mum had picked up some eggs from the farm next door. This is a completely true story. And uh, he said to his mum, oh, I don't want the eggs from a farm, I want them from Aldi. And like, you know, that, that's, that's funny, we can have a giggle at that, yeah, it's adorable. <laughs> but when you look into the, you know, what that means is actually quite worrying, you know, just to that idea that these supermarkets just create the food and that's that's the the buck stops with them you know um but yeah there's there's great companies out there getting information into schools countryside learning scotland and rate up here are two that two examples of that i'm sure you've got the same same type of thing in wales and yeah. um yeah it's brilliant um tips were good basically just uh if opportunities come up say yes and i couldn't i couldn't agree with that more i think some people are sometimes like oh i never really get the opportunity and then when a big one comes up that they're maybe nervous of getting wrong or whatever they're like oh i'll wait till the next time and that next time might never come so just always open that door see what's on the other side um but one thing i just wanted to ask because i actually meant to get into um and given we're filming this now 24 hours later i had forgotten it uh, you're immersive tours what what do they involve um, everything and anything that people want, to be honest with you, Wallace. But the, 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 it started about, I think it's about seven or eight years ago. Um, it's a company called Rick Steves. Um, so they sent a load of tour reps out from New York um, to come out here. And I did a little bit of a, a show. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I gave them a sheepdog demonstration and a shearing demonstration. 
And I just spoke about, you know, the ponies, a little bit of what we discussed really, you know, and, and how important, you know, being self-sufficient was and, um, you know, showing my garden, what I grow here and, you know, all the reasons what um, our farming life's about and, and how sustainable it was. And yeah, first first month we had a phone call um, off a lady called Lorraine Dinneman. She would, she said, would you would you be interested in talking with uh, Rick Steves and uh, doing a few tours? So that's how it started. And um, my wife says, you're not going to believe it. It was they, they pinged uh, like uh, you know itinerary for about twenty odd tours. I was like, oh my god, what are we doing? <laughs> But it was the most amazing thing. It's absolutely changed my life. I absolutely love it. I can't tell you what it does every Saturday and Monday through the summer. Um, it was just, it's just a buzz. It's a buzz because these people are coming there and they want to learn. They want an understanding, you know, and um, our, we've been on our farm long and then their countries existed you know that's one of the things I tell them and they're like you know they love it and um, I get them involved because it is immersive you know and um, after I've given a sheepdog demonstration I've got a woolly sheep in the middle so I get um, two of these Americans and I don't tell them that my dog only listens to Welsh commands so I'm getting Americans to, to say aradeg, agorva, you know all the Welsh words and teaching them with Alice it's, and they love it, you know, because there's about there's about 27 to 30 of them on these tours. Um, and then we do a little bit of a play act and then we put a sheep in the corner and then we do like a, a ninja warrior challenge to catch that woolly sheep because that's the next part of the tour where we take it up to the shed and shear it, either shear it with a machine or uh, hand shears. And, um, you know, I talk about wool sustainability and give them examples of, you know, how important wall is like we spoke earlier and, and it's just really educating these people and uh, my, my daughter came up with a brilliant idea it was about two years into the tours uh, some lady was a weaver and she wanted to take some wool home with her and um, the wool was a little bit yellow so it was a little bit pissy <laughs> my, my daughter was going I can't give it to her and the woman was fine with it you know I said I've got to give you something and my daughter was good no 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 you have it you have it and she said, no, no. So she gave my daughter five pounds. My daughter came in that evening. She said, oh, my God, we've got to do something with wool. Look, look, look. <laughs> so excited. And, um, yeah, they came up. She did a little owl to begin with. But there was so much work felting it. You know, it was intricate. And then she came up with this great idea of making Welsh woolen hats. And if you Google Mary's Welsh woolen hats, they've gone global. So they went everywhere. And we sell about 15, 20 of these hats at £10 each every time um, that we have a tour. So that's another, uh, a bit of a joke in our house. She gets more money for her little Welsh woolen hats than we get for the whole wool clip of 4,000 years, <laughs> which is which is unbelievable. But I think, you know, there is something in that story that, you know, if you utilise your products and add value to it, you can make you can make things and, you know, make a difference. So that's that's been great for her. You know, she's, she's put enough money aside to help her with the university now, which is going next year, or this year, sorry. Um, so, you know, every little, well, one supermarket says every little helps, doesn't it? So, um, you know, you know when you put these... Other supermarkets are available. <laughs> yeah. when, you, when you put these tours together, um, then we, we utilise 
smaller tours. So we work with Dream Escapes and uh, Cambrian Tours. Um, so we work with about seven different tour companies now. So we will get four Americans coming and we will do exactly the same, but we've got the little Honda Pioneer and I take them onto the mountain. Um, I've got a 30-seater Bailey trailer as well, sitting in the yard, which I bought the, the, the week that shutdown came, lockdown. So it, oh, God. It, it only ever had one job, and that was on some farm somewhere. But that that's beside the point. You know, we're, we're ready to go. We start, um, yeah, we're starting this month, actually, so we're, we're ready to rock and roll now. And um, we, we utilised some of the tours because what we found was Americans wanted to taste the food. Right. So I said to my wife, um, we did about four the first season. So we were cooking lamb shoulders and lamb legs. But let me tell you, Americans are big drinkers. So we had a lot of, you know, Welsh wine and Welsh whiskey and Welsh beers. They hardly touched it, but they scoffed every single morsel of my Welsh lamb. So um, I had to think of a better idea because I, you know, it was starting to get expensive. They were, they were eating more lamb than what I was <laughs> making. So um, I had the bright idea of um, taking a few old ewes mutton and then um, that's what we do now. We've been doing it for four years. We make mutton burgers um, and I tell them the story of the, you know, the ewe coming to the end of a, a life cycle and she goes off. We mince them, we make burgers, and they absolutely love them. So we're able not, you know, not to be as expensive with with them tours. But again, you know, if people want to pay for it, they can they can have the lamb as well. You know, so it's it's we cater for everything, and everything that's grown in our garden in season will be on the salads or on the plates if it's new potatoes. You know, and and they love that. And we're sitting in my garden. I've built a big barbecue in the back. And we look over and I'm showing them that's my vegetable plot. That's where everything on this table has come from. And, you know, the mountain behind shows you where the sheep come from. And they love it. They absolutely love it. Do you know, just just listening to that, uh, Gareth, I, I've I've started asking people, has, you know, have has your food travelled more today than you have in a lifetime, right? And it, it's... Oh. I, I, here... We all eat food that has. I'm not trying to say I only eat food from next door because that's just not true. Um, but that that sort of image you're selling there of you know the salad that you're having today is from over there and the lamb's from up there. That's something I'm very used to. Um, Mum and dad to a similar plate, not a similar size to yours, but the exact same type idea is what they do. But some people just aren't aware of that, and I don't think they realise how fantastic that is until they get the opportunity to sit down with that piece of lettuce the tomato new potatoes whatever that's just you can see the shots come out of for example um oh the, the merits to that's excellent brilliant yeah and, and for me as well you know the feedback from from what we get from them because we have to remember you know if you have a tomato in january or february a strawberry in january they, they taste nothing and, and you know i'm not being disrespectful that's, they that's do. It, it is but anything with it's in this season you know, when the few first new potatoes come, I absolutely, you know, my wife says I'm mental. I'll just eat a bowl full of new potatoes with butter and salt, and that's it. You know, I'm just I'm chomping yeah. on them. Them. Same with strawberries, you know, when they're coming into season tomatoes. It's just amazing. And that's the feedback I get from the Americans and the other tours that we do, you know. Um, I had Jack White all on his dad sitting in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. 
trying my lamb, you know, and new potatoes. And, you know, like he said, he'd never tasted anything like it in his life. And I said, well, yeah, it's just come from right next door in that field and then potatoes. And they love them. And I think, you know, sometimes as a farmer, we don't feel that gratitude anymore. We don't feel appreciated because we stick it in a, an Ivor Williams trailer and off it goes down the road and we don't see it. But when you have that feedback of somebody, you know, when you've grown something and you, you know, you're feeding somebody with it and they say, oh my God, this is amazing. I've never tasted something like this in my life. It makes you feel so good. And, you know, we need that. We need that as people sometimes, not just farmers, but people, you know, that interconnection, that bond, you know, that makes you feel good. It gives you that feeling of, do you know what? Yeah, I'm doing a good job here. I'm making other people happy and I'm making a living for myself. And that's really important. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely with you. What were Jack and Michael like? Oh, absolutely hilarious. <laughs> are they just the way they are on the telly? Ten times worse off, off camera. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and I mean, yeah, just absolutely brilliant because Michael kept saying to me, give him a harder time. <laughs> even, the, even the producer and the directors, don't give him any more harder time. But Michael put, I like you. You're really giving him a hard time. <laughs> Lovely people. Honestly, I met, I met quite a few celebrities, you know, um, and it never phases me. Don't get me wrong. I've had them, a lot of them up here. Um, but... Sometimes you're disappointed when you meet these people. Yes. But, um, you know, I've been quite lucky. There's, a, there's only maybe one or two people that I've felt disappointed. The majority of them have been absolutely brilliant. You know, um, what, one, one of the, the top people is a lady called Carol Waterman. Oh, my God. When, when you get to meet Carol, you know, she, she's great on radio and telly, but she's like tenfold more funny when she's in real life uh, and, and it's just these people Scott Quinnell another one you know Jason Mohammed all, all these people you come across Rufus Hound um, Kirsty Rufus Allen Rufus Hound what is he like he's funny oh, hilarious vegetarian right. I think he might be even vegan now but oh right. my god I, I took so much of the P.I.W.S. out of him he's, he's a really nice guy uh, very political but very, very humorous, very, very down to earth. And, and yeah, you know, it's nice to meet somebody like that you can have a, a debate with. I don't think we have to agree with everybody. I think it's nice yeah. to have that debate, but as long as it's respectable and, you know, we're having a bit of fun at it. And um, yeah, I've been, I've been uh, very, very lucky. I'm, I'm not going to name drop anymore just in case I get into trouble. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, respectful debates always good. Sometimes you see a thing that you've never, maybe, never maybe considered before. Uh, somewhat hurt that you mentioned the celebrities and never mentioned myself, uh, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no it's, yeah, rubbing shoulders with the stars. You can maybe say you are one of the stars these days. Uh, no, listen, guys, it's been great to chat. It's been um, well over two days, certainly the longest film podcast I've ever done, twenty-four hours. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, great to catch up again. Great to hear your story. Uh, there's a lot in there, um, and I'm sure sure the viewers have, have enjoyed number forty. Um, but yeah, we shall keep in touch as we have yeah, done for a couple of years now. Yeah, definitely, mate. And uh, hopefully yeah. we can have a pint together at one of these shows. And um, yeah, just chew the cud, mate. And you keep up the good work. You're doing a fantastic job. It's really important for us to get different voices out there and. Um, you know, these podcasts and these 
different ways of communicating are really, really cool. And I think it's the future. So well done, you. Keep up the good work. I appreciate that. It's very good of you. And uh, if you get the chance to share it when this comes out, I'm sure it would do better than it would have done if you didn't. So, no, look forward uh, look forward to it coming out and everyone seeing it. And for the listeners, um, thank you for listening again. I can't remember if next week is Kate Rowell or Joel Salatin. It's one of the two, but uh, two, two big names in the agricultural industry. One of them, a global name, uh, sort of sometimes spoke about as the father of organics, which is, is pretty cool. And Kate working at QMS, uh, promoting um, Scottish beef, Scottish lamb and Scottish pork. Nothing against the Welsh, just just up there at <laughs> UMS. Don't worry, Gareth. <laughs> uh, so we'll see you next week for another one. Catch you all later. Well, that's it. Another R2Cast finished. Another agricultural mind opened up. And I would just like to say that getting these guests on board uh, does take time. Uh, and it always has done, but I've now went weekly, and with that comes even more time required. And I would just like to finally thank once more the Scottish Farmer for sponsoring the show and making that much more possible. Please be sure to get in touch if you've any ideas of people you'd like to see on the podcast, or maybe ideas you have for me presenting better, because I definitely do require that. See you in the next one.